Hey folks, it's time for another episode of the High Power Archery Podcast. Today's podcast is all about effective range for bow hunters and target shooters. Now, we've discussed effective range before, but I think we need to get into how to determine effective range as a whole. While it's most mostly talked about, you know, when it concerns bow hunting, it's also applicable to target shooters as well, and I'll explain how that works in a little bit. But first, we're going to start with the bow hunters. What is effective range? Well, for the most part, effective range is described as the range at which you can shoot an effective group, two or three inches for most people, but under all kinds of other circumstances in, that are put in there, including stress, weather conditions, uh, if the animal's jumpy, that sort of thing. That's what they would consider your, your effective range. So not your maximum range, what's your effective range? For this example with the bow hunters, I'll start with, let's just say, somebody who's shooting out outdoors and shooting at 60 yards. They practice, they're effective, they've gotten their group down to two or three inches, they're not shooting a group the size of a stop sign. For all other purposes, you'd say, that is their, they're, they're effective at that range. However, their effective range when it comes to bow hunting is something else entirely. And to make it as simple as possible to understand, we'll just put it like this. When you're shooting outdoors, whether it's at 60 or 80 yards, and you've got all your stuff together and it's just happening for you, that's great. However, the reason why we came up with the term of effective range, and I'm the one, not the one who thought of it, but everyone describes it a little bit differently. The reason why they came up with this is sometimes someone will go out there and be too confident. And the reason why they're too confident is because they overlook all the other factors that go into how far they can actually shoot effectively in a real-life hunting situation. And what do I mean by that? Well, that's simple. When you're shooting at 60 yards, you're shooting at a static target, whether it's a 3D target or a paper target, a bag, doesn't make a difference. It's static. It's not going anywhere. For the most part, all you really have to deal with is a little wind here and there. But that's it. Now let's transition that to a real-life hunting situation. Target is at 60 yards. Well, that target's not static. Chances are it's grazing or it's walking. It could be alert, where it's looking for anything. The wind... The visibility, it could be ducking in and out of places where you can see it and then not see it again. There could be obstructions between you and the target. And it's a living thing. So add that factor to all of this. It's a living thing that's actively looking for other things in its environment that want to hurt it. And then add to the to the mix you let's just say that like a lot of people i don't care how long you've been doing it when you first see that deer you get a case of the jelly leg your heart starts beating out of control also you start breathing heavy breathing fast your heart rate's completely skyrocketed adrenaline's pumping all that stuff's going on well guess what when you take all those factors combined They'll take what normally is a two or three inch group out there 
and turn it into a 10, a 15, a stop sign group. Which will usually translate into a miss. Not for everyone. I'm just saying this is the potential of what can happen when you add all these other effects to it. So you can train and you can prepare as much as you want. But deep down, you got to know what is your effective range. So for the most part, what I do is I tell people, if your max distance is 60 and you add the animal to it, you being nervous and all that, your effective range is probably half of that. Now, if you're really, really good at shooting at 60 and you're hitting those small areas, hitting that 3D target that's not marked, you can probably make that shot at 30. But at 60, it's either going to be a miss or there's a lot more that has the possibility of happening that limit your range. That's why to be effective, you're shooting at 30 and under. Now, let's just further complicate this. I see a lot of people, through no fault of their own, who are used to shooting only at indoor ranges. I'd say 90% of indoor ranges are constructed with 20-yard ranges. That's it, 20 yards. 60 feet. Which at an indoor range looks like a lot. Outdoors, it looks like it's like really in front of you. And I see this when I'm at the outdoor range all the time. I see people, even though we have a 100-yard range, they're setting their targets at 20 yards. and They never move past that. Well, believe it or not, the same thing applies to them. They're nailing it at 20. They've never ventured to discover what happens when they go at 30 and 40. But the same rules apply. Just because you're nailing it at 20. Now you're in a hunting situation. You have a deer at 20 yards. Or an elk or anything else for that matter. Add to it the condition of the animal. Are they spooked or not? Are they on alert? Are they about to pull a matrix on you when, when the arrow comes at them and they jump the string? Or they, they do a halfway step back, roll out of the way. You've no idea how many different things can go wrong. Add to that, now you're nervous. Add to that, wind, anything else. Believe it or not, you're 20-yard distance, and a lot of people are going to hate the fact that I say this, but you could be the best shooter in the world at 20 yards in a real-world situation. In the woods, your effective range might only be 10. It might be 15. Some people I've seen in the woods who can't shoot more than 5. The idea is figure out what it is. Unfortunately, sometimes you only find out the hard way. You've got all the confidence in the world. You roll out there. The deer comes in at 18 yards and you miss him high. You miss him low. You miss him right. You miss him left. He pulls a matrix on you and just ducks and double steps and gets out of the way. But then when you look back and analyze it, learn from your mistakes, you might figure out my effective range is... Five, ten yards. And no, it doesn't make a difference that you bought that $1,000 bow. It's you. So now, that's a bow hunter's effective range. How does a bow hunter combat that? Well, if your effective range of, in most cases becomes roughly half, 
of whatever distance you're normally used to shooting. And I didn't even get into downward angles or upward angles or anything like that. I'm just being very general, saying it's about half. When you take all those factors into place, then what do you do? Well, the simple answer to that is start practicing at longer ranges. So if you want to be effective at 60, you should probably be practicing regularly and getting a 2-inch or a 3-inch group at 100. Because then remember what I said. If it's roughly half, shooting at 60 is a drop in a bucket. It's easy. So if the actual shooting is easy at 60 because you're normally practicing at 100, then you can eliminate that one factor from it. And the other things like the cover and all that will still have an impact, but you're getting a 50, 60-yard range that if you practice regularly in a real-life shooting situation, go take a target, put it in the woods, practice shooting a 3D target in the woods, it'll give you most of it. It's not going to give you the same thing as if you see a live animal, but if it's done safely, it gives you a lot of practice. Do that. If you're a 20-yard shooter, Go out, learn to shoot 30 and 40. Get those pins there. If you never use them, it doesn't make a difference in the woods. But get those pins there and do that. Practice until you hit 40. To some people shooting more than 20 yards, and this is maybe a Northeast thing, I don't know why, but it's like heresy. Out west, it's the norm. you got to be able to hit 20 yards. But in the northeast, it's looked at as, you know, oh, my God, no, I, I can't shoot more than 20. That's unethical. There's something wrong with it. I'm not shooting. In this case, I'm not telling you to shoot more than 20. I'm telling you to practice at 40 so at least you're good at 20. So you can double your effective range by practicing at longer ranges. Because just look at it in the simplest terms I can put it. If you're effective at shooting at 100, shooting at 20 and 30 is a joke. It's like, well, I can't shoot the same spots. I'm going to smash arrows. Not only do you have the confidence to do it, you know you can. In the woods, if I see something come out at 20, boom, done, no problem. I regularly practice at 80 to 100. So if my groups are good at 80 to 100, I can reduce the factor so much that at least I know for sure I'm good at that. I still got to take all my regular precautions, make sure the animals come and all that. But I increase my, my chances of being able to pull that off exponentially. Now, let's get into target shooters. And this is where people are going to be like, what are you talking about? Target shooters don't have an effective range. Yes, they do. Okay. Yes, they do. And in a lot of ways, it's just as bad and just as important that they know how to maximize their effective range and be competent with it than even a bow hunter is. Let's just say, so, so here's where this all comes from. And I used to get criticized for this until people saw my girls shooting at tournaments and then they started asking me questions like, why are they so calm? Why is this stuff not affecting them? It's simple. And I'll explain it now. I'm not letting out any big secrets. It's just the way I was taught to do it. 
So when you're shooting, in, so let's just say with a target shooter for indoor practice, let's start with that. You're always shooting 18 meters, 20 yards, whatever. And you're, let's just shoot, say you're shooting 30, you know, 30Xs, 300 games all the time, which most people can't do indoors, you know, under the best circumstances or regularly. But let's just say that you, you've aced that, right? Well, guess what? Professional shooters do that. Yet, when they go to a big shoot, they can't. They'll fall off. They won't shoot 30, you know, 330Xs. They might shoot 327Xs, something like that. That's why Vegas is so hard to do because Vegas, with all the different conditions they put on you, somebody who's used to doing this all the time, Sometimes they'll shoot a 300, 300, 299. Or a 330X, 330X, 310X, they still make the finals. But it's not the same thing as when they're practicing with no pressure. So again, we're on the indoor side. They practice with pressure. With no pressure, let's just say. They're shooting indoors, the lighting's perfect, everything's good. And you're able to shoot, and you're able to shoot almost that perfect score every single time. So was the outdoor shooter when we talked about the bow hunting effective range. But now, let's change it up a little bit. Now you're going to a competition. And if you've ever been to Lancaster or to a Nationals or anything else, it's like you went from walking in a very, very quiet room with silence and peace and all that. And the minute you open the door, it sounds like you just opened up a cafeteria with 10,000 people in it. There's not a spot where you can find silence anywhere. Well, guess what? For most people, that little thing will just blow them away. Because now, and this I get from a lot of people like, well, she's used to shooting you know, in complete silence and all that, and she just falls apart. Okay, you've just added by all that noise, and only the noise, an influence that, let alone anything else going on, can affect them. So, you've got that going on. Now, again, you're still at the tournament. The lighting could be different. How many people actually adjust for lighting when they're in a tournament? If you're shooting pro, you better learn how to do it. But a lot of times the light at your range is nothing like the light at the range or the venue where you're shooting. I can personally attest to this because the range I usually shoot at has very good lighting. A range I went to where they were having an event has possibly the worst lighting I've ever seen. I had to change out my peeps three times to find the one that gave me the best picture. If I didn't have the peeps available to me just to change the inserts out, I would have had a very bad time. So lighting's another factor. Here's another factor for you. Your home range, whether it's at home or at a range of club you shoot at, all of that, okay, is familiar to you. So at 20 yards, you're good, you're comfortable. 
you go to a venue or to another range, all of a sudden, that, especially at venues in Lancaster, I could tell you is the one place where my newer students see this problem, but I get them through it because we try to practice the night before or whatever. But when you're used to seeing a certain target picture at 20 yards and you get to this big, gigantic venue who's got these huge ceilings and all that, and instead of seeing just 15 or 20 targets across, you're seeing 100 going across. 20 yards? Looks like it's 50. This happened to me when I was a kid the first time I did it. I'm like, whoa, I'm not set up for this. And my coaches looked at me, my teacher, and he's like, it's the same distance. Take your head out of it. It took me a couple of goes before I actually realized what was going on. And he would just tell me, look at the floor. Look at the floor and follow it to the target. Look at the floor and follow it to the target. Forget about everything else. And that was the only way I was able to figure it out. So now you've got the lighting affecting it, the venue affecting it, the noise, like I was saying, how I get around that with my girls. Simple. When my girls are practicing, okay, if we're at the the range um, indoors, I'll turn the radio on so there's a lot of loud sounds. If I don't have the radio available, I'll go on my phone, I'll pull up YouTube, and I'll pull up one of the Lancaster qualification shoots. Blast it up on loud. Put it on a little external speaker I got. Guess what? It simulates really well the kind of noise you're going to deal with. The lighting and the other part of it, that's going to come with experience or being able to change your peep out. And like I said, looking at the floor down to the target will get you re, re, re-synced, and you'll know that you're not shooting something 50 yards away, but it's going to look like it. Also, the type of target. If you're used to shooting a black target butt that's sitting back there, guess what? When someone sticks it on one of these spiderweb targets or something like that, it's got a big white face on them, or they put it on a target wheel, it all looks weird if you're not used to it. It's a sudden change. Now we'll add to that. Not only do you have the environmental look the sounds, the lighting. Now you've got a mental thing going on. Because for some reason, everyone, when they go to a tournament, thinks that everybody is staring at them when they're shooting. You may have 200 people on the line at once. Right? Like at Lancaster or something like that. 200 people on the line. Yet for some reason, mentally, you think that every single eye in that place is looking at you. Easy to tell people it's not true, but they don't get it through their head. It takes time to get over that. In the case of Lancaster, where they got camera people walking around during qualifications and stuff like that, you got to learn to phase all that stuff out. So now while you are good at the home range at 20, they put all these other factors on you, still the same 20 yards, But you wonder why instead of shooting a 300, you shoot a 260. All those influencing factors. So what do you do? Well, for the bow hunters, practicing at double the distance. You're indoors. You can't do that. But you can. Because what you do is, for people who have this issue, 
What I'll do is I'll roll a target back to 10 yards. Same exact target face. And I'll be like, shoot this until I can get all your arrows in there. And you shoot, if it's the case of a 300, shoot a 300 on there with 30 X's at 10 yards. Sounds easier to do than it actually is. But there's a reason why I go through all this. Because once they figure out how to do that, then I'll move it to 15. Do all that. I could push back to 18. They're still hitting 330Xs. I'm only increasing this distance by a little bit. But what I'm doing is I'm do, I'm having that same effect like shooting at 100 yards outdoors. How shooting at 20 is a joke? Well, if I can do that, then I'm stretching out their their range a little bit at a time, but making sure the proficiency goes up to 100% as I stretch it out. So you're at 10 yards, give me a 330x at that. Because if you think about it, if you miss at 10 yards, what happens at 20? Now my girls can smack it at, at that. They can smack it at 15. They're not missing anything. If we really want to crank this up, then what I'll do is I'll have him shoot the same target outdoors at like 30. If you've ever tried to shoot outdoors with indoor arrows, it sucks. But on a day that's not windy, they can do it. And they become efficient at, say, 30 or 35 yards, shooting a 320 X's or something like that. Bring them indoors, 330 X, it happens. But for the most part, they're all shooting 300s. And they're probably shooting, I don't know, 20, 25 X's. Now, I've just increased their effective range to 20. So when they go to a tournament, they don't have that automatic reduction because of everything else. They're practicing in noise. They're practicing with distraction, like I'll have a TV on or something like that at my home range. I put a TV on the side. And if they get a wandering eye, they're going to screw up. But I'll put on something that they want to watch, but they can't if they're going to concentrate on what they're doing. So now we've taken out the sound influence. We've taken out the noise influence. The self-confidence thing has grown. And now it's all on them. But what I'll also do is, from their last tournament, that they think that everybody's staring at them, I'll videotape them as they're shooting, and then I'll pan behind them. And when they see no one's even looking in their direction, Okay, now this clicks. Now that's how you do it with the indoors. With the outdoor, it's the same thing. Outdoor, if you're shooting 50 meters, okay? USA Archery, 50 meters outdoor, that's what people shoot. Well, let's just say you're shooting that. Well, guess what? Yes, you're going to be going from one outdoor venue to another. But now you're going to have People around you, noise around you, all that good stuff. Maybe you have to learn a swirling wind, a la Arizona Cup. All that. So instead of practicing at 50, I'll have them practice at 70. Get really effective at that. That's a factor that will make up for other distractions, even though I can get them to pretty much get around the noise and the people staring at them factor. And now, shooting at 50, like, wow, that's so much closer. It helps. 
So remember, when it comes to target archery, it's the same thing. Unless you're practicing at double distances or practicing with all these other distractions and factors in there, your effective range under pressure, normal human psyche crumbles under a lot of pressure sometimes, and all the other things that they add into it, not familiar with the venue, um, not used to the noise, it pretty much cuts your range in half. So if you're 20, you're probably effective at 10. But if you can practice a double, become proficient at shooting it under all those same circumstances, for the most part, except for the venue thing, at 10 yards, and then stretch it out to 20, stretch it out to 30, then when you get to 20 yards at at a venue or something like that, not a big deal. Learn to live with the pressure. Figure out nobody's really staring at you. You're good to go. You make it to the finals is something something different. But if you want to shoot your best, learn to shoot under the worst circumstances. Your best performance has always been at 20 yards. Learn to shoot at 30. Learn to shoot at 40. If you're really, really good shooting at 50 meters, but you go to a competition and you suck, it's probably not you. Well, Let's just say it's not you as it's not you in your normal circumstances. It's all the other influences that are on you, the environment, the people, the noise. So it halves it t- cuts your effective distance in half, but by practicing longer, you can fix all that. And practicing with the other distractions, you can fix all that. Now, 3D shooters are the same way. You're used to practicing at your regular 3D range. You're used to certain targets over there. Okay, fine. Maybe you have some that are a little downhill, some are a little uphill. But the fact is, you're used to practicing on the same targets all the time. And for the most part, most clubs don't move them around. Mine doesn't. So what do you need to do? Well... When you go to an ASA or something like that, or an IBO, and you're shooting in the woods, okay? Because somehow people think that what you see on YouTube is what the competitions are really like. No, they're shooting on flat ground in finals. Flat ground indoors most of the time. They're not, or if it is outdoors, then it's in pleasant weather or whatever whatever you have it. When you're actually shooting a qualification, you're doing it in the woods. So become proficient at that. Same thing. Start going to a lot of tax shoots. Go to different 3D ranges to practice. Because remember, you're used to shooting at your club where you have this X amount of lighting per, you know, in different target areas. Where you have X obstruction in front of you. And no matter what, unless somebody's moving the earth... That obstruction is going to be the same way every single time. Go to different ranges where they have different things set up. Different challenges will increase your productivity because you're sharpening your game. Now, if you don't have a lot of 3D ranges around you, that doesn't mean that it is what it is. So if you want to increase your effective range, increase your increase your effectiveness when it comes to 3D, Simple. When you go to that stake at the 3D target, instead of standing directly where that shot is, 
Move over about 10 feet if the range of the rules around, allow. Move over 10 feet one way. Try to shoot through you know, some tree line or something like that. Make the shot harder for yourself. Vary it up. Switch it up. Otherwise, if you're just used to what it is at the only place that you're shooting and the same conditions all the time, then your effective distance that you're able to shoot normally, your regular score, is not what you think it is when you go somewhere else. So that'll do it for the topic of this podcast. Um, I hope you all understood it. If you have questions about that, then just email me. But it's something that's a real thing that affects a lot of people, whether you're shooting indoors, you're shooting target, or you're bow hunting, especially on the bow hunting side. People get heckled because, like, oh, we don't want to see wounded animals walking around and all that. And a lot of times it has nothing to do with the fact that the guy didn't practice all the time. But he didn't take into account factors A, B, C, D, and E, and biggest factors that is him that have to do with that. I've seen guys who can bang away at targets at 60, 70, 80 yards, but that when I'm with them, flat out miss at 25. Why? Because they didn't account for everything else going on. All of a sudden, you put them up in a tree. You put them up in some darkness. You put them up like, well, there's a branch between me and that thing. Their eye goes to the branch. So practice. Extend your range to extend your effective range. Just remembering that with all the factors in there, your effective range just on flat ground is usually about half. If you add the you know, angles, shooting up, shooting down, shooting is something that may be you know, moving, which you shouldn't be doing, it lessens it even further. But there are ways to increase it. So that does it for the topic. Uh, we got our listener questions, which, like I say... I always pick out these based on what I, you know, I I make the podcast based on whatever I get for the listener questions. So our first listener question comes from Joseph T from Ellenville, New York. He writes, hi coach, my kids and I met you at a bow hunter safety class you were assisting with about four years ago. I think you spent more time just answering questions and going over shooting after class than any instructor I've ever seen. I have three sons and have been to a few hunter safety classes, but none of them ever took the time to go over the things you did. And I've never seen so many people stick around after class just to listen and ask questions like I did that day. So hopefully you remember us. And I do remember them. I remember that class. Anyway, once we found your podcast, it's been a valuable tool for, for my kids and me as well. That's good to hear. Uh, we've learned so much and wanted to know if you could help us with my son Jesse's problem. He's been shooting for two years, and last year was his first year hunting. He had three opportunities at deer within 25 yards, but unfortunately missed them. We practice at 30 and 40 yards and can shoot well at those distances. But even though he practiced for hours, the day after that first miss, he still couldn't make it happen. I don't know why or how it kept happening, but he kept missing the deer at any shot chance that he got. I don't want him to give up. My younger son, Wade, is going to be hunting his first time this year, and any advice you can give would be really great. Thanks so much for what you can do. So this is exactly what I've been talking about. They're used to shooting 30 and 40 yards. But when the deer is sitting there, I think he said it was at 25. His his 30 yards, which he was really effective at, he's effective when you add all the other factors and maybe being in a tree stand, the animal being you know active, that sort of thing. 
it's cut down to almost half, if not more. So, like I said, this is the thing where people are set on, I'm good at this range, I'm good at this range, and they roll out to the woods and, you know, you add all the natural elements in there and it doesn't happen. Now, in this case, I emailed him back and explained to him what was going on. Because, you know, even in a hunter safety class, I'm like, if you don't practice in real-life situations, then there's no way you're ready to add all that together with a live animal. And I explained to him what was going on, and I said, simple. If you're good at shooting at 40 yards, stretch it out to 60. If you're, you know, if you're shooting on flat ground, make sure he's practicing at the tree stand height. Bell went off. He had never shot from a tree stand before. So now I said, well, that's probably his issue right there. Because he says that even when he started shooting at like 45 and 50, his group was good. But now you add the factor of he was shooting in a tree stand. He never shot out of one before. It's not the same thing. There are ways you have to angle the different shot measurements, the angle you're shooting at. All that comes into play. So he's like, really? I'm like, really? The father's been hunting maybe 15 years or something like that. But he's a blind hunter. He shoots from a ground blind. His son wanted to be in a tree stand. Never shot from one before. So I told him, I said, do me a favor. Uh, go ahead. I think this was Tuesday I talked to him. I said, go ahead. Have him put it out of target. You know, they, they've got a, a tree stand they put up in a tree in back of their house because they've got the woods in back of them. I said, put it out of target. Put the target at 20 yards. Put him up in the tree stand. Have him shoot from there. And he told me that when he was shooting at he was going all high. So I said, he's got to learn the proper way to aim, the proper way to bend, all that, not to drop his arm, craziness like that. And I heard from him this morning, and he said that he's actually getting him into the, set, into the center at 20 yards now. I said, fine. Combine that practice with putting a target further and further out, let him shoot, shoot it from the tree stand. Give him some brush in the way and stuff like that. Simulate as much as you can. It'll fix his problem up. He's got a couple of months before the season starts. It doesn't start until the end of September, beginning of October. So he's got plenty of time. By the time hunting season rolls around, I'll tell you this kid's going to be able to shoot quarters out of the tree. But again, he wasn't prepared for the situation that he put himself into. And that limited what his effective range was. In this case, in this case, it limited it a lot between the angle and the distance and a live deer. Well, guess what? Now, if he gets that, he'll have the confidence that he can actually do it. Right now, the kid, the kid's confidence was shot. You missed what three, four times. But we can fix that. And like I said, same way you fix it for the bow hunter and the target shooter, you fix it for somebody who's had this sort of thing happen to them. Our next question comes from Mark C from Columbia, Maryland, and he writes, "Hi, my 14-year-old is practicing in Joad." Participating in Joad, sorry. She shoots indoors all the time and averages about four times a week. That's a lot. That's good. One of those times is with her coach and the rest of the Joad students from her class. This is her first year shooting, and on an NFAA 300 round, she's averaging 274, which is pretty good if, if this is the first time she's shooting it. She and a few of the other kids shot the sectionals, and that was her first competition ever. That was just this past weekend. Um, but she cr- she was crushed because she only shot a 231. 
Okay, so her average is 274, but she shot 231 in an actual competition. The next day, we shot at the range, and she shot her average of 274 and even a 290 game. We couldn't understand what happened. Then last night, her coach held a shoot for the students with movie tickets as a first prize. It was at the regular range, but again, she only shot a 238. She's really upset and starting to think that she just uh, doesn't have what it takes. Please let us know what you think. I know you coach a lot of girls her age, so I'm hoping you may be familiar with what's going on. Yeah, again, that goes to the effective range thing. So she's shooting Joe at. She's used to shooting with the other kids, whatever. They go to sectionals, which most likely was held, most likely was held somewhere else. But now you've got the pressure from all the noise, all the people there, and more than likely the subconscious thing that she thinks that all the eyeballs are staring at her. But they're not. But again, we don't know what the lighting was like over there, whatever it is. But in real life, under real situations, her score score dropped by 40 points or whatever it was. Next day, like he says, she goes back to the home range under the normal circumstances, probably with no noise and stuff like that. And she shoots her same average score and even a really good one at 290. They go into a competition at the home range where all of a sudden you have pressure. There's movie tickets on the line and stuff like that. And she fails to perform again. So now it wasn't the venue, but it could have been the noise. And it was just the actual pressure. So when I replied to him, I said, listen, this is what's going on. Have her practice at 10 yards and nail it, nail it, nail it. It'll seem like... Why am I doing this for? But it'll make sense. Practice with a lot of noise. When I told him about the YouTube thing, he emailed me right back. He's like, for real? Just play a YouTube video? I said, yeah. I even sent him a link to a YouTube video he can use, which is one of the Lancaster shoots from like three or four years ago. Qualifications. I said, that's like two hours, three hours of YouTube video with just, just noise. Go ahead and play it in the background. And he says that the first time that she shot with that noise, which I think was last night. Like, she was all over the place. I'm like, okay. Then incorporate that distraction into her practice. Watch what happens. I'm sure that once she learns to do that, and she learns how to get around pressure, and she realizes that people aren't all staring at her, she will go back to doing what she normally does. And that's why I tell people, it's very simple. You could be a backyard champion. That's a, that's a word commonly floated around the internet. Guys who, when they're shooting in their backyard, they're unbeatable. They, they can pick dimes off of targets at 30 and 40 yards. Take them to a real-life situation, like hunting or something like that. Can't do it. Conversely, there are people who can't shoot paper for their lives. You put them in front of an animal... There's something that just clicks and tunes out everything else, and boom, they won't miss. You have to adapt. That's all it is. And like I said, there are ways to adapt. Usually a coach can help you, but sometimes, and I hate to say it like this, a lot of coaches are oblivious to the fact that a student could be a perfect shooter, but then when they put them in in an environment where not everything is the same, where not everything is the status quo that they're used to shooting with, they fall apart. And they sometimes just say, well, they just need more experience. They need more experience. Well, no, it's not just more experience. 
You have to immerse them in what is affecting them. So if I'm used to, you know, let's just say I'm used to chopping vegetables all the time. I can chop a chop an onion up without even looking at it, without cutting my fingers off. Well, now you go ahead and you say, well, okay, I want you to chop this onion like that, blindfold it. Okay. I can still do it because I have feel, but you only have 12 seconds to do this. Well, guess what? Time limits. It's another thing that comes into affecting competitions. Time limits. I got a time limit, 12 seconds to do this. You know what's probably going to happen if I do that? Chopping an onion in 12 seconds now, blindfolded? I'm probably going to wind up chopping off a finger. So the way you get around that, not that anyone's listening to this to learn how to chop an onion, is start chopping your onion timed. Give yourself 50 seconds and give yourself 20 seconds, give yourself 30 seconds, whatever it is. But if you're going to say, well, you're going to have 12 seconds to chop this up, you better bet that under the best circumstances, I can do that in six. And then, boom, 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 chopping it in 12, I get away with it. Disclaimer, I'm not telling anybody to chop onions blindfolded. That's all on you people if you decide to do that. Don't go writing me or calling me or trying to sue me saying that he told me to chop onions blindfolded to practice. Like, no, I didn't. Anyway, so that'll do it for the listener questions. So that all means that it's time for don't be that guy. Um, and today's don't be that guy uh, will not be a rant, okay? I, I'm going to try not to rant because it's it, it's something that, um, I don't know, that it, it really means a lot to me. So I'm just going to go through it and we'll see what happens. And if I manage to make this, through the whole thing without freaking out or destroying something, well, then I think I've earned the credit of maintaining my cool. Not going to be easy, but I'm going to try. Anyway, this episode's Don't Be That Guy revolves around something I've discussed before. And like I said, I'm not going to blow up, but it's serious. And if if you are new to the sport or have even been shooting for years, by now you realize that not everybody has the benefit of starting off with a coach to help them along the way. Just that simple. A lot of times people need to pick up things from others at the range, okay? And a lot of times there are those there who will be kind, and if you ask them, are more than willing to lend a hand. Sometimes there are even those people who will see somebody struggling and just walk up to them and help them out. But this episode's Don't Be That Guy goes out to those folks out there who will see people struggling and stand by and do absolutely nothing. Or even worse, just refuse to help someone when they ask them. Unfortunately, I've seen this way too often. And the worst part of all of this, and the part that really gets my goat, is that a lot of times, it's not just the other shooters at the range. It's the coaches that are there and sitting in between students or you know, waiting for their next student to show up. And they're the ones who do it. I've seen these people flat out refuse to get involved if it's not going to mean any money for them. Even worse, they're those that no matter what you do, if even if you offer to pay them, they won't do it. They won't help. And 
they'll come up with some excuse like, I just don't have the time. Whew. Does it anger me? You have no idea how much it does. But more so than that, it saddens me. And maybe it's just because I'm getting older and I've come to realize how short life can actually be. But these people fail to realize what they are really doing. Now, my own teacher, the man who taught me everything I know about archery, he passed on nearly 32 years ago. In all the time that he spent teaching me, he never asked for anything in return. Not a thing. Never wanted money, anything. But as time went on, he molded me not just as a shooter, but also into someone who could pass this on to others. He was molding me into a coach. I didn't even realize it. He changed my life in more ways than I can possibly count. And that's the absolute God's honest truth. During all the years I spent with him, like I said, he never asked for any money. All he wanted was just dedication to becoming the best archer and person I could be. Now, during the last few years of his life, um, he focused a lot on teaching me his philosophy when it comes to archery. He said archery could make a difference in someone's life and that I should be their reason. Really didn't click in me until later in life, you know, that last part, be their reason. And he also told me that it was our responsibility to make sure it keeps going. I actually, to this day, remember it was like, a am going to say about three or four months before he passed on. I remember him telling me, kid, the only thing I want from you is to pass on what I taught you to as many people as you can. Just be the reason that they love archery. Nothing else. If you only do it for one person in your life, that's all I want. And I've done my best to do just that. But the people that I'm directing this don't be that guy to. Just flatly turn away new shooters and people who are struggling to learn our sport. Okay? They just don't get it. Sure, everybody wants to make some money, but a lot of times they just refuse to help anyone other than themselves. The fact is, if we don't help others out, then they can get discouraged and just give up. Well, you know what? And I teach this when I'm teaching a bow hunter course. I teach this anytime. But if you keep that trend of not helping anybody out when they really need it, fewer and fewer people are going to get into this sport. And before you know it, there'll be fewer and fewer places to go shoot and gather with others who love the sport as much as you do. And the only person responsible for that is you. Now, normally, I would just condemn these people who do this. But like I said, it's a bit of a different don't be that guy. See, unless you're some kind of celebrity or a famous athlete, for the most part, we live our lives out, and there's all that there is to it. Nothing special will be written in the history books, and if we're lucky, we're remembered by our friends and family. But to those people who are guilty of ignoring those who need help, I say this. We should not help others just for money or to get fame or recognition. It's not what I do for what I do this for. I mean, it's just not. And anyone who knows me really well will tell you that. But as my teacher told me, I'm going to tell you. Passing the sport on to students or to someone who needs help may not have any financial rewards. Most of the time, it doesn't. But the one thing you can do is change somebody's life. You have the opportunity, no matter how small, to help somebody out. And whether it's an 8-year-old or a war veteran trying to find something to bring balance to his or her life, 
you can have an impact that lasts their entire lives. As a coach, I try to instill this in all my students. And anyone will tell you that, that they drop whatever they are doing to help out anyone who asks. As someone who's dealt with cancer, I can tell you it makes you realize how short life can actually be. We may not be celebrities or politicians that are written about in history books for the good or bad they do. Let me not go there. But if you manage to help out just one person, it has the potential to change their life. And while fashion and politics and all that jazz are changing and are all the time and just as easily forgotten, by helping that one person out, you could be forever remembered. You could be their reason. And if that's not enough to help, well, then I have only this to say. Stop being an asshat and make a difference. <sighs> okay, I, I got to give it to myself. I didn't go completely crazy uh, on that one, so I will pat myself on the back. But you get what I'm saying, people. So I did not go bananas because it's something where I don't want to just be yelling to somebody. I want them to actually understand why I'm saying this. Do your part. If it's only that you're going to do it when someone asks you, that's fine. You don't have to go ahead and volunteer and go up to people and try to help them. Like I said, I've run into people that don't want to help. Not a big deal. But don't be one of these people. Don't be that guy who just sits there and no matter what, I don't want to be a part of it. No, I'm not helping you. No, no, no. Because, like I said, doing that will make you a complete and total asshat. And it's one thing to be remembered by others. It's a completely other to be remembered as an asshat. So there you go. Anyway, that'll do it for this episode of the Don't Be That Guy. And uh, lastly, we'll just go over one of two little things. Um, last time in the last podcast, I did mention, uh, you know, my, my apprentice, Leanne. She has a GoFundMe that we're trying to set up. She's trying to get uh, some funds to pay for her first year of school. Uh I'm going to post a link in the description for this podcast. I would really, really appreciate it if everyone shared that link on Instagram, tried to you know, share it with others. Any kind of contribution people can make will go a long way. But like I said, I'm not just going to let, let all the stuff just fall off like that. If I have to do whatever I got to do to make it happen, I'm going to do it. Um, just if you have the ability to help, please do. And that'll do it for this episode of the High Power Archery Podcast. As always, if be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast so you can stay up to date. Um, visit us at our website, www.highpowerarchery.com. Check us out on Instagram and on Facebook. If you have any questions, email us at highpowerarchery at gmail.com. So until next time, it's never goodbye. Shoot straight and be safe. <laughs>